Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Well, today we're going to go a little bit off our usual topics initially and emphasize the science part of health and science in the news. Some really cool things kind of popped up across my event horizon this last week, and I want to share them with you. I'm always very excited about science, and particularly when it's good news. So let's start for something that I picked up in Le Monde yesterday, uh, Le Monde being the French newspaper. Uh, by the way, handy tip, folks, if you are looking for a way to keep your brain in good shape, learn another language or make sure that you work on a second language. The other alternative is to use a new instrument, a new musical instrument. The key is connectivity. You have to encourage and cultivate a widespread connectivity in the brain. And those two things, at least so far as the research totally tells us, uh, at this point are way better than any nootropics and just as important as getting regular exercise. Good news on the science front, and good news from Australia. The global warming front uh, is, well, maybe this is something we can use. You'll probably remember that huge fire that took place in Australia in the what would be our winter, but their summer in 2019. Between September 2019 and February 2020, there were so many unbelievable fires in uh, Australia. There were 33 people killed, at least 2,500 houses destroyed, and terrible, heavy ecological consequences. More than 8 million hectares of forests were destroyed, and the amount of carbon that was put into the atmosphere was more than Australia puts into the atmosphere with all of its cars and all of its uh, energy generation in a year. But a study published just the 1st of September in uh, the Remote Sensing of Environment shows that by the end of the year 2020, that is to say about a year later, which is amazing, these emissions had been completely reabsorbed by the regrowth of vegetation. The, these fires, by the way, put more carbon into the atmosphere, more smoke than a typical, the average volcanic eruption. From the air, you could see, from satellite view and such, you can see the loss of vegetation, but you can also see how rapidly it grew up. And the quantity of herbs, uh, particularly eucalyptus trees, uh, that regrew after the fire is nothing short of astonishing. Now, part of that had to do with the fact that it rained like crazy. After years of drought, it rained big time in 2020 in Australia. And more than 260 million of tons of carbon got sucked back in to vegetation in Australia. Now, this has a lot to do with how enormously adapted eucalyptus are to fires, and they pull carbon back in much quicker, but they probably aren't a great idea for us to be planting because they also burn very easily. It's part of their life cycle to burn. So pines and uh, oaks are not the same, and we have to understand that they aren't going to pull the atmosphere back in as the carbon back out of the atmosphere as quickly. However, it is important for everyone to plant trees. And in fact, there are local programs that the uh, county, Santa Cruz County, had recently where you were where they were giving out free trees to try and improve the canopy. And if you can plant a tree, uh, at least 
know, 30 feet from your house, it's a good idea. Now, we think we know everything about microbiology, but uh, a truly amazing discovery in microbiology, uh, although I must say this discovery actually makes the name microbiology a bit of a misnomer. Let's start with bacteria. These are the oldest and uh, most diverse and abundant organisms on Earth. The archaea, a bacteria-like organism, is also in that mix. I know there's lumpers and splitters, so I want to accommodate both groups. Scientists recently discovered a bacteria, well, actually, what they thought was a eukaryote that actually is a bacteria. It's called Theomarguerita magnifica, and it was found in the shallow areas of the mangrove forests in Guadalupe in the in the Caribbean. First of all, that was discovered in 2009 when someone was looking around in the swamps in the mangrove, looking at you know decaying trees, and they saw these little filaments. But again, it was a lot of filaments, and they figured it was a eukaryote because, well, bacteria just aren't that big. This bacteria, however, is that big. It is a centimeter long. It looks like a very, very thin strand of angel hair spaghetti. It's 50 times bigger than any other species of bacteria. Now, of bacteria, the sulfur-oxidizing bacteria, the kind that you find in the ocean vents, are among the biggest. They They get up to 750 micrometers. That's giant for a bacteria, but when you talk about this being a single cell, a single cell an inch long, well, that's unheard, excuse me, half an inch long, that's unheard of in our knowledge. Just goes to show maybe there's a lot on heaven and earth that are undreamed of in our philosophy. Now, this bacteria is a sulfur metabolizer, as I said, but it has a really unique property that hasn't actually been seen before. Think of that long string of spaghetti. Now hollow it out in your mind and imagine that it is hollow. And inside the hollows, there are little tiny seeds clustered on the inside. In fact, the researchers who discovered this called these pepines, which is French for seeds. The the archaic English word for that would be pips, and it means little seed in in English, but it's kind of a Britishism. We don't really use that word here. Each of these pips contains DNA. It contains hundreds of thousands of copies of the genome of this bacteria. You could see this as kind of a transitional entity between the eukaryotes and the prokaryotes. It's like hundreds of thousands of proto-nucleuses studded, studying the inside of this bacteria, which obviously allows it to generate, well, what do you need for a bacteria, right? You need cell wall, you need functional uh, DNA re- replication apparatus. So all of that, you need you know, cellular metabolics. But all of that is happening in the cytosol. You have to make those things having a handy copy of the genome right there allows it to be this big. You don't need the cellular transport apparatus to carry it around. You probably know about tardigraves, I, they're, the, the water bear. These are my favorite uh, organism of all, uh, including humans, although I am a speciesist, because the tardigraves can survive just about anything, including vacuum. Some of them ended up in a, on a probe uh, on the moon, or maybe it was Mars. Uh, they can they can survive vacuum. They can dehydrate. They rehydrate when you bring them back and put water in them. They rehydrate and start moving around again. These are some pretty durable organisms, and I admire that. So they're my fave. And I actually have a little tardigrade squeezy ball that I presented my husband with once as a, uh, well, a bit of a joke, but also because they're really cool entities. We have, I believe, an interesting 50-year story here 
about a drug that's been around for a very long time. It is very, very, very generic. And it was originally developed in the 1970s, where because of its side effects, it became a fourth-tier drug for hypertension. So speaking of the 70s and 80s, first you try the diuretic, then you try the beta blocker, then you try the calcium, then you try the ACE inhibitor, then you try the calcium channel blocker. And if none of those work, well, then you go to minoxidil. And minoxidil is a, uh, well, among other things, most of you will have heard of Rogaine. The major way that this pharmaceutical is sold now is as a topical ingredient in hair growth uh, treatments. Because when you gave it to people to treat their hypertension, they would develop all kinds of hair all over their body as a side effect. Some bright person figured out maybe if we just put it on top of the skin, it would work. And what the way that it works is it has an effect on the growth cycle of hairs. So your hair grows for a while in the hair follicle. That's called the antigen phase. And that's genetic. How long it grows is genetically determined. How fast it grows is genetically determined. You probably remember seeing those pictures from uh, the turn of the of the uh, 19th century of the Victorian women. I think there's these four sisters and they all have hair kind of all the way to the floor. That's a mutation, obviously, and one that was uh, clearly an autosomal dominant mutation. But the the fact is that how long your hair can get is genetically determined. And at some point, the hair stops growing and it drops into what's called the telogen phase, the resting phase. Resting phases last for a while, sometimes uh, 30 days, sometimes uh hundred, uh, sometimes 60 days on the average. And at that point, the antigen restarts again at the base of the hair follicle and the existing hair falls out. That's called the normal telogen loss. And you lose about 10% of your hair every month to this. So that's, you know, hair loss is to be expected. You can tell if you're in, te- if it's a telogen hair by looking under a magnifier and you won't see a bulb because it wasn't actively growing. If you pluck a hair, you'll see, ac- you'll see active growth and a little white bulb on the end of it. Now, continuing with the minoxidil, minoxidil actually speeds up the time to antigen. So while you lose more hair, you also regrow it faster. And so that was the side effect until somebody figured out to turn it into a drug. But the topical minoxidil hasn't been all that great. For one thing, if you have longer hair, it definitely kind of messes with you. For another, if you put it on a raw place on the scalp or have a cut, you can actually drop your blood pressure just from the topical uh, agent. And so people with low blood pressure don't generally tolerate it. However, in the last few years, people have been experimenting with microdosing oral minoxidil to see whether or not they can find the sweet spot between the side effect of dropping the the blood pressure and treating uh, hair loss. So I'm going to give you a secret. It's published, but uh, the dose of this minoxidil orally that seems to work is in the range of 0.5 to 1.5 milligrams. Now, the lowest pill they make, I think, is at 2.5. So you could try getting your doctor to prescribe it and splitting the pill, but I'd recommend getting it made up at a compounding pharmacy initially so you can safely, safely find out what dose works for you. Uh, The mechanism of action being what it is, you should see hair growth starting up within about 30 days. You should notice a difference. So a couple of months of this, talk to your doctor about this. It's all over the internet. And I think uh, it's extremely cool. So hopefully you will uh, find it helpful. And if you do, please call in or write me and let me know. Because I'm very excited about helping people. And this one looked like something that my audience might be interested in. More good science news. This one in Uh, health, uh, a widely used fertility drug can improve 
memory and spatial reasoning and may turn out to be an actual drug that treats Down syndrome. So hang on to your hat. This is new research, and there's very preliminary work in humans, which I will tell you about. But let's go back and talk about Down syndrome for just a moment. Down syndrome is the most common genetic cause of intellectual disability. And nowadays, with people waiting longer to have babies, the frequency of it is up to about one in 600 babies. What happens in Down syndrome is during the production of the uh, egg, the chromosomes don't divide properly. These are in generally, it's more common in older women, although the majority of Down syndrome babies are born to women in their 20s. Just statistically, the risk is lower, but more women in their 20s are having babies than women in above 35. Averages out to one in 600 babies, but if you are above 35, the risk is one in 50. So those are the group that we're doing early diagnostics and giving people the option of terminating the pregnancy. Well, let's just say that used to be a universal option and in most of the world still is, but we aren't going to drop into politics right now. People with Down syndrome can range from severe intellectual to mild intellectual impairment, but generally it falls into the mild and moderate. They do have an elevated risk of heart defects, uh, early mortality, infertility, and if people, when they're young, have access to therapy, education, a supportive family environment, they live very happy lives. And so this isn't something that we want to ignore. It's a different way of being human. But the idea of being able to help people be able to learn more readily, that sounds like a win-win. So in a recent study, researchers looked at a protein called gonadotropin-releasing hormone. This is a major regulator of reproduction. It's used widely in fertility treatments, so its safety profile is good. And recently it's been found to play an important role in brain developments. Um, If the neurons in the brain that secrete gonadotropin-releasing hormone don't develop properly, they can cause infertility and interfere with the sense of smell, both of which are seen in people with Down syndrome. And GNRH also influences the development of language and other cognitive abilities in infants and toddlers, and it's critical for the formation of brain connections during adolescence. So a researcher, Vincent Prevost, who is at the University of Lille, uh, wondered whether low gonadotropin-releasing hormones, or GNRH, levels during early development might play a role in Down syndrome. So he went and used mice that had been genetically engineered to make an extra chromosome, similar to the ones in Down syndrome, the analogous hormone in the mice. They then tested the rodent's memory and the sense of smell, and they found that both got worse after puberty. These mice had also had abnormalities in their gonadotropin-secreting neurons, because the regulation of the genes for these neurons that make gonadotropin-releasing hormone was located on chromosome 21. So the, the epigenetic regulatory function was messed up. By the time these rodents had reached young adulthood, many cells had no GNRH in them, which is quite abnormal. So because it's mice, and you can do stuff like this with mice with our technology, they used microRNA, small strands of RNA that you inject that go into the cell and turn on gene expression. And they were able to show that they reversed these adult rodent smell and memory deficits. This is important. This is not just developmental. They then gave Lutrolef, which is a drug commonly used to replace gonadotropin Uh, in people, and they gave it to the Down syndrome mice, and what they found was it worked. After two weeks of treatment, their ability to remember different objects and distinguishing between smells matched those of other healthy mites. I'm having like a flashback on flowers for Algernon at the moment here. I really am, (laughs) and uh, I, I just... 
if you saw the movie Charlie, which I think came out in the 70s, or you aren't familiar with Flowers for Algernon, it's a wonderful story, and I highly recommend it. But another researcher, an endocrinologist in Lausanne, teamed up with Prevost, and they did a small pilot study in human, in, in human men with Down syndrome. All, all of this group of seven was between 20 and 50 years old. This was not a placebo-controlled double-bind uh, study. And the participants had... The uh, the participants had, uh, you know, they had it fully consented, and then they got a little pump taped to their arms, pretty, probably reused the insulin-pumped technology. But what's important here is with that technology, the pump delivered a pulse of the drug every two hours, which mimics the pattern of how the hormone is naturally released in the body. And this is very important because we hormones are a control switch, but if you leave the sound on, the body stops listening. Hormones work by sending a phasic release, like the beat of a, like the downstroke of a conductor's wand. If, if you keep the wand down, the orchestra loses the beat. So this phasic release, this beat of hormones is critical to all of the functions. And I want to stop here and just talk about, for example, testosterone replacement in men. Because if you read the uh, if you read the list of side effects of testosterone replacement, it sounds awful. And these side effects are from the men, many of them bodybuilders, giving themselves injections every week or every two weeks of testosterone uh, cypriate. But that's not how the body delivers testosterone. The, bo- the, the body delivers testosterone in a phasic spike once or twice a day. I think it's once in the morning is the big spike, and then there's a a lower spike in the evening. Getting back to this human study, this was a a trial. There was no placebo group, but after six months, the men showed a 10 to 30% improvement on the test I actually use for cognition, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, MOCA, which is a very good test of intellectual disability. It challenges not just memory, but spatial tasks, verbal memory, mathematics. And it's a good test, and it's been validated because practice generally doesn't make it easier unless you practice a lot of times. So after six months, you would have forgotten. Another study was done uh, or is in the process of being done, and it's a placebo-controlled trial with Ludwig left. So we'll get a chance to see, after this study is published, whether it works. Right now, it's just preliminary. The improvements in cognitive scores are very small, but subjectively, the parents are reporting that it's easier to talk to their son on the phone. It's promising. It's not definitive. But I'd say keep your fingers crossed, because we may be here at another major good news for science. And... I really hope that it, uh, I really hope it's true. Now, our first email uh, came in from recently, I think yesterday, from Troy and Pacific Grove. And uh, Troy wrote about, uh, with a link to an article, which I'm going to tell you about. And we're going to do a little uh, science lesson critique about what I see as potential problems with this article. It's really going to resonate well with what we had to say about this last story on the Down syndrome, because it has to do, effectively, with hormones. But Troy referenced this article, and he said, this new study uh, has me concerned because it suggests that taking vitamin D increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease, and Um, I and my wife have been taking uh, vitamin D supplements for quite some time, and we're wondering if we should continue. So first of all, let's talk about the study. And as we go through, I'll point out the concerns I have about the study. So this came out of Taiwan's National Health Researches Institute. It's going to be tracking the use of vitamin D supplements and Alzheimer's disease. 
So what it says is that there's findings suggest that it could make older adults 80% more likely to develop Alzheimer's and double the risk of death among those who already have the disease. So let's start with the fact that the epidemiologic studies that we have, and epidemiologic studies are just the first step in hypothesis formation because correlation does not equal causation. We see an association between low vitamin D levels and a higher risk of Alzheimer's. But causality has not been established. You can't establish causality with epidemiology because you're just observing. You're not isolating all the circumstances and changing one variable, which is necessary to really get a higher level of evidence. The researcher whose name was J.L. Zhuang, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, said his his purpose was to clarify whether vitamin D deficiency was a risk factor for Alzheimer's or an outcome caused by the disease. Well, all right, that's good because he thought of one of the things that might be at risk here. So in its study, uh, they found that mice with Alzheimer's, given a vitamin D-sufficient diet, exhibited significantly lower levels of vitamin D in their blood suggesting that the deficiency was an outcome of early-stage Alzheimer's. Well, that's great, except that the animal model for Alzheimer's is completely wrong-headed, okay? So early-onset Alzheimer's, like hitting you in your 40s, which is not what we are talking about as elders taking vitamin D, and not what the epidemiology suggests. So early-onset Alzheimer's is a mutation in the gene for beta amyloid. And the unfortunate people who have this mutation don't break down beta amyloid properly, or rather I should say the amyloid precursor protein is mutated. So it tends to turn into the beta rather than the alpha, and the alpha is benign and the beta can accumulate in cells and cause neurotoxicity. Okay, so far so good. But Elder onset Alzheimer's, the type that hits people in their 70s and 80s, those individuals, which is by far the majority of people with Alzheimer's disease, have a normal, let me repeat that, they have a normal gene for beta amyloid. That's not what's wrong. And we've been scratching our heads on that one for a very, very long time. I believe that the support and the data most clearly say that it is chronic inflammation that leads to a problematic breakdown of beta amyloid leading to accumulation in the cells. That is the core problem there. And there's plenty of data to support that. People who have a genetic predisposition to become more inflamed when they are challenged by an infection, for example, do show a higher risk of Alzheimer's. Uh, but they have a normal amyloid precursor protein. So he's using an animal model. To make the animal model, they basically tweak the mice to have a damaged amyloid precursor protein. Let's call that Alzheimer's, which is you know, sort of correct, Alzheimer's 1 versus Alzheimer's 2. And then all of the drugs, and we've been trying, we've been using drug after drug, you know, immune uh things that break down beta amyloid, things that sequester beta amyloid, all kinds of targeting of beta amyloid in an, that work in animal models, right? Because we created, based on a, a false premise, we created an animal model that doesn't actually match the disease. But when we give those drugs to people, for the most part, they don't get much better. It doesn't really work. So that's my first critique here. They also discovered, getting back to Zhuang's work, that the mice had higher levels of vitamin D receptors in their brain, particularly the senile plaques associated with uh, Alzheimer's disease. Investigating this, they found that beta amyloid triggered the interaction of vitamin D receptors with a tumor suppressor protein that promoted the death of neuronal cells. Fine. Uh But we're talking about mice, and we're talking about mutant mice. So generalizing from mutant mice to humans is quite a leap, particularly in the face of epidemiological evidence to the contrary. 
So they also looked at uh, National Health Registry Research Database, and this is where they made their second big logical error. They found that dementia-free older adults were 1.8 times more likely to develop dementia if they took a 25-microgram tablet of calcitriol, which is the active form of vitamin D, daily for over half the year. And people with pre-existing dementia were two times higher risk if they took this vitamin D supplement. Now, I will point out this vitamin D supplement was what was being given in Taiwan. It's not available over the counter. Over the counter, you buy vitamin D2 or vitamin D3. You you get it in the 25-hydroxy version, which is not active. It is partially activated. Let's walk through what vitamin D does. It starts off as a proto version of cholesterol sitting in your skin. It gets hit by sunlight. The sunlight activates it. It changes into a slightly different form, and it goes into the bloodstream, into the tissue. It is then filtered out by the liver, which activates it by putting on a second, by putting on a hydroxy, an OH group, at the 25 position on the cholesterol molecule. All right, so far so good. It then circulates in the bloodstream. This is why this is the one that we measure. Okay, so we're measuring the inactive form. Now, what do I know? What can I tell you about the active form? Well, the activation takes place in the kidney, and it's activated as needed by the kidney. And if you have inflammation, you'll see an elevated level of of 1, 25 hydroxy vitamin D, cholecalciferol. And what that means is that the, the kidney responds to the inflammatory signals in the body and makes more vitamin D because vitamin D is an anti-inflammatory. So it's using it to modify the immune system, keeping it from getting overheated, right? But at the same time, what you're giving in Taiwan is the activated form. And vitamin D is a hormone. And what did I just tell you about giving too much hormone and not giving it in a phasic fashion, essentially bypassing the body's own regulatory system in order to get the levels of one hydroxy vitamin D in the, in, in the bloodstream into the quote-unquote normal range, which is great if you're trying to prevent osteoporosis, but completely not analogous to what people need for inflammation modulation. So I will postulate that maybe people make who have early Alzheimer's make more vitamin D receptors because their body is trying to turn off the inflammation in the brain that is causing them problems. So our next email uh, today comes from Kathy in Walnut Creek. Uh, and Kathy writes, circumcision. Well, dear Dr. Don, what are your thoughts on circumcision? Have you found it to be true that men who are not circumcised tend to have more bladder infections? I'd appreciate your take on what the science is currently saying this procedure on newborns. Thank you for your reply. Well, Kathy, I'm going to be giving you my opinion backed up with a little bit of data. The major advantage to doing circumcision occurs in infancy. Infants have more problems with urinary tract infections, and that's because of that tight little uh, circ- uh, that tight little preface, uh, which foreskin, if you will, that isn't pulling back, and they are pooping into their diaper, and so they're just as likely as infant girls to get bladder infections, which is considered an increased risk. But it is rarely lethal. Uh, babies are pretty much engineered to deal with their bladder infections, and it's rare that you see any kind of major complications there. I was trained to do circumcisions. It was a standard when I was trained. I always found it uh, distasteful, personally, to cause pain like that without any real good sense of benefit. Later on, when I started going to Indonesia and talking to doctors there, I discovered that the rates of cancer of the tip of the penis, penile cancer, are much greater in areas where circumcision is not practiced. But cancer of the penis is not a common disease, and we now have effective vaccines to prevent that entirely, 
which is the same, it's caused by the same virus that causes cervical cancer. So I see circumcisions as being primarily a religious decision. It's not a hygiene issue. Occasionally children have bad anatomy and they have to have a circumcision because of that. But the idea that you're somehow benefiting the child versus benefiting the parents, I think, is completely wrongheaded. So let's see. We have... I am this not... is Aline on the phone. Oh, Aline. Hi there. Yeah, thank Hi. you again well, for taking my call. That's right. Go right ahead, and I Aileen. remember your um, question related to what you've all been... T- when you've covered, and I am taking calcium, magnesium, zinc with D3 mm-hmm. combined. And But my question, please, regarding a... Uh, um, came upon a doctor, I love his name, Dr. Alberto Alciro. Ooh, look at you roll your eyes. Yeah, and it was in Brain Science Magazine. I certainly won't read it, but he said, a causality between the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, and multiple sclerosis. Ah, we covered that a few a uh, few months ago. Yes. And there was initially epidemiological data, and it there appears to be a molecular mimicry uh, function going on. So in other words, the EBV virus, uh, when you make antibodies against it, some of those antibodies actually, through a case of mistaken identity, match mm. to, you know, think about that facial recognition software that's out there. So the, you know, you've probably heard that if you're a white man, facial uh, identification is pretty good. If you're a white woman, it's less good. If you're a uh, brown person of any flavor, it's bad because the number of examples that it's been trained on is much, much lower. So we have a lot more misidentification. So as the, you know, as the the programming gets better and the number of examples gets better, the machine learns. And the immune system is very much like a facial recognition AI in the sense that it's recognizing a shape, a 3D shape, and attacking it. So if the 3D shape that you make against EBV looks like the way your myelin basic protein, the surface, in other words, of the insulation on your nerve cells in your spinal column and brain, if in the rest of your body too, for that matter, lots and lots of myelin out there, uh, that, that insulation gets cut because the immune system attacks it. The nerve becomes inflamed and it doesn't carry the information it's supposed to carry. Excuse me, doctor. Mm-hmm. Does EBV actually really exist? Epstein Barr virus is a thing. It's known, for example, to cause a type of lymphoma called Burkitt's lymphoma, very rare in the United States, mm-hmm. more common in Africa. It causes mononucleosis, which many people get, and most people who get mononucleosis don't get multiple sclerosis. Oh. There's multiple other factors at work here mm-hmm. that we have yet to fully understand. And so I think it's maybe that the stars align in a bad way and maybe the microbiome's influenced, maybe the vitamin D levels are low. That is one thing about multiple sclerosis. It's much more common as you go to the extreme latitudes. The closer you are to the equator, the less likely it is to occur in the population. Mm. And during well, I know lots and lots of people, and i only known of one fellow my generation uh, howdy-doody generation that had EBV. Well, actually, I'm sure that there were many, 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 many people in the howdy-doody generation who had it, <laughs> and it just got, you know, it was written off as mono, or, oh. and that was, that was it. They had the virus. They made antibody against it. This has probably been, a, been around for as long as, for a long time, and maybe not as long as okay. all humans have been around. Oh, okay. But, you know, we don't have a test for it, until routine blood tests are done when a kid gets low energy and has a sore throat. Otherwise, you know, it's whatever, bad humors. If you go back a couple hundred years, it's, you know, it's evil humors or it's black bile or whatever cognitive model, uh, you know, stuck chi in the throat, meridians, whatever cognitive model people have, that's how they explain it. And thank so, you, thank you. All right, well, you oh, go, have a good thank day. You. Bye-bye. Have a good night. So nasal spray vaccines. Uh, This week, an inhaled version of COVID-19 vaccine produced by a company in China called CanSino Biologics was approved for use as a booster dose. 
there are like a hundred oral or nasal vaccines in development. It's obviously much easier to pass out. And these vaccines, because they're put in the nose or put in the oral mucosa, change the dynamics of contagion. I think we've all figured out that the secret sauce for this virus, the COVID-19, is how well it spreads, how efficient it is at spreading. So what if we what if we stopped it at the nostrils? That would be great. So we're hoping that these mucosal vaccines will prevent even mild cases and block transmission to other people. This is called sterilizing immunity. So there are already a few mucosal vaccines approved for other diseases. For example, there's a mucosal vaccine for polio. It's given orally. There's one for cholera, which I hadn't heard about until just now. And, of course, there's one for flu. I actually personally trialed the nasal vaccine for flu. That was in 2009 when we had the H1N1 pandemic. That was one that could have gotten much nastier than it did. It killed plenty of people, but it could have been disastrous because so few people had been exposed to the bird flu. And it could have gone... (laughs) Viral? Yes. Well, I guess it's a virus. Most vaccines now currently are injected into muscle, and this causes you to produce T cells and B cells that live pretty much in the bloodstream and the tissue, but they aren't present at high enough levels in the nose and the lungs to provide that rapid production that would happen if you were making IgA. Localized immune mucosal immune cells This is called tissue resident. So they're sitting there right under your your nasal mucus and right inside the first layer of your lung tissue uh, in the bronchioles and the the tiny little air tubes. These are resident memory T and B cells, and they produce a type of antibody called secretory IgA. And it lines the layers of the mucus in the respiratory tract. And we think, and we don't know for sure, this is, you know, early yet, that these will be available, that these will work and reduce the amount of transmission. So it's going to be a while. There are 20 mucosal vaccines currently in clinical trials. There's one in India, one in Iran, and two in China that are in phase three, which is testing efficacy compared to other vaccines. Iran actually gave an emergency vaccine approval last October, but the data hasn't published anything on efficacy in humans. And I won't go into all the details here except to say that this is exciting and uh, we really do need a way out of this paper bag. So I'm hoping that these mucosal vaccines will fulfill their promise. That would be awesome. Just a quick one here uh, on the same topic, COVID vaccines and infection. This was a study looking at people in jail. And of course, in jail, you have a cellmate and you're stuck in the same jail with each other. Uh, this this was done, this latest study was done uh, in California, 35 adult prisons over a five-month period starting at the end of 2022, 22,000 confirmed cases of uh, COVID during that time. And uh, this was BA1 and BA2. Of course, we're up to BA5 at this point. But nevertheless, the study showed, it gave us numbers. So I'm just going to run the numbers really quickly. If you were unvaccinated, that's our baseline rate of infecting your cellmate. If you'd had one vaccine shot, and remember this is by October uh, starting uh at the end of 2021, so vaccine had been available for over a year. Uh, Those who, if you had one shot, you were 24% less likely to infect close contacts for the first month or two after that shot. If you were infected, you were 21% less likely, again, for the first few months after your shot. If you were both previously infected and vaccinated, you were 41% less likely. And because I've been tracking antibody levels in my patients who want to be tested and are, can come up front with the front money, which is like 100 bucks to do the testing, I can tell you that if you've 
previously been infected and you get vaccinated, the antibody levels are astonishingly high. And since we think these fall off in a linear fashion, it makes sense that both would be a big deal. I'm actually surprised that uh, it was only 41% likely, but we're dealing with a population that is forced to be at very close quarters. And it's really not at all analogous to what we have with household contacts, which have done all of the studies. So I think we can look at this study as a worst case scenario. And I had an experience with one of my patients, an older lady with type 1 diabetes, which makes her very vulnerable to infection, living with two adult relatives, both of whom got COVID. She isolated. They were very careful. They wore masks in the house. And she did not get it. She'd been vaccinated. But I think what we're looking at there is privilege, all right? So what did my patient have that the people in prison had? Well, for one thing, she had a room of her own and a bathroom of her own, and she had caretakers who could just bring her food and put it outside the door and go away. And so this elderly woman did not get sick, and I'm very excited to report that, but I think it makes us really stop and think. Well, it makes me stop and really stop and think about privilege. So I've been talking about vaccines. I'm going to pop this story into the mix. Hope for preventing Lyme disease. There is a final stage for a Lyme disease vaccine. And we we had one that failed. Gosh, I guess it was in the aughts. I don't remember that one uh, exactly when it failed, but it was brought out to market and then it, it was just taken back off again because of side effects. But we're getting close to a new vaccine. There's currently nothing that can help with this. And untreated Lyme can cause an arthritis-like syndrome, very similar to juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And we get close to 500,000 cases diagnosed with this every year. So this is a Pfizer vaccine in collaboration with a company in France called Valneva, And it's going into late-stage clinical trials. 600 healthy adults will be enrolled in the United States in endemic areas. And they've already shown it induces an immune response with no adverse uh, reactions reported. I'm not sure what the N was on that study, but it's a step forward from the previous vaccine. This disease has gotten a lot worse, okay? It's increased between 2007 and 2021, Uh, There's been a 357% increase in rural areas and 65% in urban areas. What's up with that? Well, our old friend, global warming. Those ticks that carry the virus are beginning to thrive and overwinter in regions that were previously too chilly for them. So increasing global rates, obviously, what a market for Pfizer to develop a new vaccine, But I think we have to stop and think about this as the tip of the iceberg in terms of the effects and the new diseases and things that have previously been considered tropical medicine that primary care doctors like myself are going to start encountering in the next decade. And I'm thinking of taking a tropical medicine course just to get myself swatted up so that I can diagnose these things or even think about them. So a little bit of advice. We're starting the end of uh, the wind up on the program. So let's do taking a walk after dinner. Okay. A quick stroll after eating, even just like a couple of minutes actually can make a difference. This came out of the University of Limerick in Ireland and it was a review study. They looked at seven trials And essentially, you can reduce your blood sugar, you can get rid of blood sugar spikes, and lower your risk of developing heart disease and diabetes. What do you have to do? You have to stand up and walk around. Just a few minutes of strolling significantly improved the blood sugar profile compared with just sitting at the desk or the couch. It slowed the rate of glucose rise, which is what drives this rapid jump in glucose, drives and an overreaction by the pancreas, too much insulin is released, and then the blood sugar drops too quickly, the liver kicks in, throws some glycogen into the thing, and off we go zigzagging away. Well, 
Standing up after a meal helps your blood sugars, not as much as walking. What's going on there? Well, basically, your muscles are grabbing the most available fuel, which is in your bloodstream, sucking it out because it's demand, right? So it sucks it out, and that lowers. It's like a buffer in an acid-based uh, solution. It's buffering the increase and substantially lowering the risk, which is just astonishing. So uh, get up and walk around. Take a couple of loops around the house. We're talking two minutes, folks. And for people who are pre-diabetic, you know, get on the treadmill, then go do the dishes, then sit down and watch your binge watch, whatever it is that you're watching at the moment on what, whatever streaming station you're watching or whatever you're doing with your with your device, your pad, your book, whatever. Get up and walk around first. This is like totally cheap, easy way to lower your risk. And I'm going to be recommending it to all of my patients. Another quick one, if you want to lower your risk for stroke and heart disease, start using a salt substitute that contains potassium chloride. We have major data that take that starting a salt substitute, regardless of how old you are, what your sex is, or your weight, they cut the risk of early death from heart disease and heart attack by 10 to 13%. And the potassium chloride levels in the blood, were there was no adverse effects. This isn't really enough potassium chloride to make a difference. It probably works by stabilizing the heart rhythm. So though that many cases of sudden death or when the heart is challenged, less disease. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.